Father, what an organization, blessing the world, blessing tens of thousands of people. And we thank you for amen. We thank you for its leadership. And now I pray thee that as we open the word of God, as we study together tonight, that you in this closing meeting would lift our vision, inspire our hearts, and share with us a message personally. Lord, I know that when your word is open, that you personally interpret it to hearts. And Father, I will say some things, but the Spirit can say much more. And so I pray that the Spirit would come to each heart, impress each mind, and share with us the message that you want us to hear, not the message that the the preacher preaches. And so move among us, we pray thee in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's been over 25 years now, but the experience is indelibly impressed upon my mind. Have you ever had one of those experiences that the images of that experience have come back over and over again? We were in Moscow, and my Russian hosts invited me to attend the Russian circus. Now, let me assure you that I'm not a circus attender. I think in the last 50 years, I probably have attended one circus and Maybe that was one too many. I'm just not a circus attender at all. But I agreed to go with my Russian hosts because they wanted me to see the world-famous and world-renowned Russian acrobatic performers. And I would say to you that they were spectacular. The audience oohed and awed and clapped and wildly cheered as these acrobatic performers performed their high-wire acts. But that's not the performance that impressed me that evening. I was more interested in something else, and that was the plate spinner. Now, I had never seen a plate spinner before. I don't think I've ever seen a plate spinner since. The plate spinner had a pole about five and a half feet high, and he began to twist, so that pole began to spin. And then he took fine china plates, plates more expensive than a preacher's salary could ever afford, and he put them on top of that pole, and he got those plates spinning. Now, you can just imagine the audience had their breath taken away because if that pole falls, those plates crash on the circus floor. But not only did he have that one plate spinning or that one pole going, he ran over here while that one was spinning, and he got another pole spinning and put plates on top of it. Then he had those two going, and he had to run back and forth between them, spinning a pole, keeping those plates going, spinning that pole, keeping those plates going, and to our amazement, he got a third one going. And pretty soon, the plate-spinning man had five poles, five fine china on each pole, running, spinning those poles, spinning those plates. He was running back and forth, breathless, trying to keep that china balanced. Have you ever felt like a plate spinner? (laughs) You seem to be running from one thing to the next, overwhelmed with the tyranny of the urgent. You've just too much to accomplish. You can't get it all done. And you flop in bed at night, exhausted, thinking about the things you've not gotten done. Your work is certainly not finished. Your to-do list is half done. Your mind is racing. Sleep doesn't come, and you frantically attempt to think how you can cram more into an already overloaded schedule. 
tomorrow. In the light of the tyranny of the urgent, it would be well for us to meditate on the life of one who could easily have been overwhelmed. With the tasks that he had before him were greater than the tasks that any human being has ever faced. But yet he exuded a peace. There was a calmness about Jesus. There was an unrushed presence about him. There was a focused purpose about Christ. Now, one of the most amazing, one of the most startling, one of the most awe-inspiring passages, one of the most breathtaking passages in all of Scripture is found in John chapter 17 and verse 4. And if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, because we're going to look at the text tonight. If you have your iPhone, look at the text. And I know you're not texting. You're looking at the text. And there's a difference between the text and texting. John chapter 17, and we're looking at verse 4. Jesus has come to the end of his life. And he has come to the end of 33 and a half years of ministry. 33 and a half years of life, three and a half years of ministry. And he makes this remarkable statement in John chapter 17, and we're looking there at verse 4. And Jesus puts it this way. He says, I have glorified you on the earth, and I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Now, this is a remarkable statement. Jesus says in his last hours, on his way to Calvary, soon Peter will deny him and Judas will betray him and the Romans will crucify him. And the Jews at that time, Jewish leaders, will turn their backs upon him. And soon there'll be a crown of thorn upon his head with blood running down his face and nails through his hands and a cross will be suspended, his body will be suspended on a cross hanging between heaven and earth. And Jesus says, I've finished the work which thou hast given me to do. How could that possibly be true? There were still hungry people to feed, still sick people to heal. There were still demon-possessed people to deliver. There were still sinners to forgive. There were still broken people to be made whole. There were still dead people to raise. There were still lost people to save. And Jesus says, I've finished the work that you've given me to do. Now, notice what our text does not say. Our text doesn't say, I've finished everything I've wanted to do. Our text doesn't say that. Now, I'm confident that the Savior desired to heal a lot more people. I'm confident that there was much, much more that he would have liked to do for people in need. He left many useful tasks undone. He, met, he left many urgent requests unmet. What does our text say? I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you had given me to do. Jesus was focused on God's mission. There were many things he would have liked to do, many things he would have liked to accomplish, still more needs that needed to be met. But to glorify God is to fulfill the task that you were born for. To glorify God is to 
accomplish the mission that God has in mind for your life. To glorify God is not to finish the work you want to do, but it's to finish and complete the assignment that he's given you. Three eternal principles that are focused on our theme, I'm willing. The first eternal principle is this. Jesus' life's purpose was to daily seek the Father's will and do it. Jesus' life purpose was not to seek his own will. It was not to follow his own plans. It was not to do the things he desired. Jesus' life purpose focused around one issue. Jesus sought to discern what the Father's will was in every given situation. And the thing that he wanted more than anything else was to do the Father's will. Hebrews, the 10th chapter in the 7th verse, is a summary statement of the purpose of Christ's life. Hebrews, the 10th chapter. And we're looking there at the 7th verse. Hebrews 10, verse 7, Jesus speaks. And he says, Then I said, Behold, I've come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Jesus' life was focused around one single issue, the willingness to do the Father's will. This guided every decision he made. This drove every purpose of his life. He says in Hebrews 10, 7, Lo, and he's quoting, of course, Psalm 40, verse 8, Lo, I've come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Looking further in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is coming to the cross. He's focused on the last hours of his life. Jesus does not come to the cross singing the doxology. He does not come to the cross singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. The nails that were to be driven through his hands were real nails, The crown of thorns that would be placed upon his head was a real crown of thorns. The pain that he would experience physically was real pain. The emotional pain was really emotional pain. The sense of the condemnation of the sins of this world, Hebrews 2.8, he would taste death for every man. Uh, The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, cursed is everyone that hangs upon the tree. So when Jesus goes on the, hangs on the cross, he he bears the accumulated weight of the guilt of the sins of all humanity. And he does not see himself coming through the portals of the tomb. He sees himself being agonizingly, painfully separated from the Father forever. And he says, if that indeed is the cost of salvation, so that John and Mary and Pete and Alice can be in heaven, I'm willing to go into the grave and never come out to save humanity. That is the marvel of the cross. There's nothing like this in any literature in the world. Jesus comes to Gethsemane. And there in Matthew, the 26th chapter, noticing the 39th verse Jesus, Matthew 26, verse 39. 
says, he went a little farther and fell upon his face, the earth-stained face, the dirty face of Christ as his face is in the dirt. And he prays saying, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup, let the cross pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was absolutely, totally committed to doing the father's will. The overriding principle that governed Jesus' life was in every instance to discover the Father's will and by his grace and through his power to do it. Wouldn't it be tragic to accomplish a great deal but miss the purpose you were born for? Wouldn't it be tragic to accomplish all the goals you set for your life and fail to accomplish the goals that God sets for your life? Wouldn't it be tragic to come to the end of your life and say, I've accomplished my dreams, the dreams for my business, it's expanded, the dreams for my practice, it's multiplied, the dreams for my employees, look at how many I have, the dreams for my medical or dental career. Wouldn't it be a tragedy to come to the end of your life and say, I've accomplished all my dreams, but fail to accomplish God's dream for your life. The question is not are what my plans for my life or my practice, but what are God's plans for my life? What are God's plans for my practice? There's a marvelous statement in Desire of Ages, page 208. I think of it often. It says this, but the Son of God was surrendered to the Father's will and dependent upon his power. So utterly was Christ emptied of self that he made no plans for himself. He accepted God's plans for him, and day by day the Father unfolded his plans. So should we depend on God that our lives may be the simple outworking of his will. Now notice, Jesus is so surrendered to the Father's will Notice it does not say that Jesus didn't make any plans. I've heard some interpret it that way. Uh, does this mean we should make no plans at all and just kind of let some things come and go in some kind of random, chaotic way? That would be irresponsible. The statement doesn't say that. It doesn't say Jesus made no plans. It says Jesus made no plans for himself. In other words, Christ was so surrendered to the will of God that he sought the Father's will in every single thing that he did. Jesus' life was dedicated to one thing, doing the Father's will. So the fundamental question of life is this, what is God's will for my life? What's God's will for my practice? What is God's will for my relationship with my staff? What's God's will for my relationship with my patients? What's God's will for how I use my time and how I spend my money? What's God's will in how I relate to my spouse and how I relate to my children? What's God's will in my entertainment practices? What's God's will in my personal health habits, such as my diet? and exercise. The essence of life is to seek God's will, discover God's will, 
do God's will with the aim of pleasing him and bringing glory to his name in every single thing that I do. Now, there's another aspect of this principle of discovering God's will. If you seek God's will in every situation, actually, you're going to have a lot more time in your life because a lot of the frivolous stuff that's been occupying time and attention, that's going to be gone because you don't see that in the light of God's will. You'll focus on what is most important, doing God's will and bringing him glory. That'll be the supreme desire of your life. You remember the three angels' message. The first angel's message says, fear God and do what? Give glory to him. And how do I give glory to him? By seeking his will in every situation. See, this principle weeds out a thousand trivial things, and it makes possible this amazing truth. This is a startling one, really. It's found in Ministry of Healing, page 206. If every moment were valued and rightly employed, we should have time for everything we need to do for ourselves and for the world. That's a startling statement, isn't it? If every moment, how many moments? Half my time, a part of my time. What does it say? If every moment were what? Valued and rightly employed. We should have time for everything we want to do. Is that what the statement says? There may be a lot of things that I want to do, but they are not eternally significant. It doesn't say everything we want to do. It doesn't say everything we'd like to do. It says if every moment were valued and rightly employed, we should have time for everything we'd need to do for ourselves and for the world. There may be things I want to do, but they're not the most important. They may be urgent, but they're not eternally significant. Jesus did not finish all of the work that he could have done in Palestine. He didn't accomplish all he would have liked to do, but he did finish the work that God gave him to do. Now, the only, fr- only alternative to frustration when you're overloaded with work is to seek God's will in a given situation. Because if you are overloaded, it may be that you've taken on assignments that God himself has never given you. If you're too frustrated and you have little time for your family, little time to exercise, if you have little time for devotions, if you have little time to pray, if you have little time to witness, if you are seeing so many patients that you have no time to interact with them, no time to pray with them, no time to share eternity with them. Could it be that you've accepted assignments that Christ has not given to you? This leads us to the second eternal principle. The first eternal principle really focuses on a prayer. And here's what the prayer is. It's a dangerous prayer. The prayer in the first eternal principle of doing God's will is this. An honest evaluation of my life and getting on my knees and saying, God, what is your will for my practice? Lord, what is your will for my medical ministry? Lord, what is your will for my life? It's a very simple prayer, but it's a dangerous prayer. It's a prayer that says, Lord, I am willing. I'm not going to battle you. I'm not going to struggle. Here is the problem that solves all problems. 
The problem that solves all problems is the surrender of the will. And once the will is totally to surrender to Christ, you don't have to battle anymore on the things you don't want to do because you already surrendered that all to Christ. And when the Holy Spirit reveals it to you, you say, Lord, I'm already surrendered, so that thing I'm giving up to you by your grace and through your power. So the first question is, Lord, what is your will? All you need to reveal to me is your will. What is your will for my life? What is your will for my interaction with my patients? What is your will for my use of my time? What is your will for my practice? That leads us to the second eternal principle. And the second eternal principle is this, that it's vital to distinguish between the urgent and the eternally significant. It's vital to distinguish between the urgent and the eternally significant. Now, the story of the resurrection of Lazarus reveals Christ's ability to distinguish between the urgent and the eternally significant. I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to John, the 11th chapter. You know the story well. Lazarus is sick. He is deathly sick. And he needs a physician. John, the 11th chapter. Lazarus is sick. He is so sick that if the physician doesn't come and treat him quickly, he will die. John 11. We start there with verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Jesus often found calm relief in the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. So Lazarus was more than a casual acquaintance. He was a friend, a good friend. And verse 2. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord in the fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So here Jesus gets a message. Your good friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus is about two days' journey from Bethany. He's in the Galilee. And the scripture says this, verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, His sickness is not unto death, but that the glory of God, the Son of God, may be glorified through it. Now, as you look down there, verse 6, it says, So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, that agitated Martha and Mary a great deal. It seems strange. Jesus has the ability to go immediately and heal his friend. He's received the message, Lazarus is deathly sick. But Jesus does not move. He waits two days. And during that two-day delay, Lazarus dies. It is urgent that Jesus goes. It is urgent that medical treatment be given. It's urgent that the healing touch of Jesus heal Lazarus from his sickness like he's done so many other times. But he waits two days, takes two more days to get there, and by this time, four days have gone by, and Martha speaks, 
in verse 21 of John 11. And you can almost hear the sorrow in her voice. You can almost hear the frustration that she echoes. You can almost hear the, the questioning of Christ in John chapter 11 in verse 21. And Martha speaks up and she says, Martha says to Jesus, John 11, verse 21, Lord, if you were here, my brother would have died, would not have died. In other words, Jesus, why didn't you come sooner? Jesus, why did you, why did you wait? Why would Jesus neglect something so urgent as healing a man whose life was ebbing away? Why would Jesus delay when medical treatment was so urgently needed? It was urgent to heal a sick man, but it was eternally significant to raise him from the dead. It was urgent to cure sickness, but more urgent to reveal, more important to reveal the loving character and resurrection power of God by calling him from the grave to new life. The healing of Lazarus would have been a good thing, but raising him from the dead was a great thing. Healing Lazarus would have impressed people. Raising him from the dead so demonstrated the power of God that the Jews believed and glorified God. Jesus was able to distinguish between the urgent and the eternally significant. Jesus had a divine sense of timing and knew the difference between something that was good to do and something that was great to do. There are many things in life that are good to do, but there are some things that are great to do. Sixth volume of the Testimonies, page 24. It is the essence of all right faith to do the right thing at the right time. Can you say that with me tonight? It is the essence, together, it is the essence of all right faith to do the right thing at the right time. Would it have been a good thing for Jesus to have healed Lazarus? Would that have been a good thing? Would have been a good thing, but was it the eternally significant thing that could make a much greater impact? Now listen as I continue reading. God is the great master worker, and by his providence, this is 6 Simon of the Testimonies 24, he prepares the way for his work to be accomplished. He provides opportunities. He opens up lines of influence and channels of working. If his people are watching the indications of his providence, if, if, if as you, as a medical practitioner, are watching the indications of God's providence, if you have that sense that all you want to do is God's will, if you're looking not to do the good thing but the great thing, not to do the urgent thing but to do the eternally significant thing, if that is on your heart, now notice, if people, and I'm going to read it a little different, if, if medical practitioners, if physicians, if dentists are watching the indications of God's providence and stand ready to cooperate with him, they will see a great work accomplished. You are on the verge of your practice with seeing with new eyes, of looking for eternally significant opportunities to see a great work accomplished for God. God is going to do something significant through your practice this week. He's going to do something significant for your, through your ministry this week because yours as a dentist, yours as a physician, yours as a medical professional is a ministry. Now notice what, scripture, what Ellen White says. Their efforts 
rightly directed, will produce a hundredfold greater results than can be accomplished with the same means and facilities in another channel where God is not so manifestly working. A hundred times greater results. We are praying every day, God, show me your will. We're praying every day, Lord, show me the things not that are good, but that are great in your sight. Show me the things that are not urgent, but that are eternally significant. Lord, help me to have those eyes to see patients who have heart needs that walk through my office so I can make a difference. Help me to know what my priorities are. Talk about priorities. Talk about priorities. Talk about having a clear vision. Some time ago, one of my African friends told me this story. His grandfather was brought up in a little rural village in Africa. Very, very small village. And a famine came through that portion of Africa, so the villagers were incredibly hungry. And uh, his old grandfather had a gun. Now, the problem was his grandfather had one bullet for the gun. And so the villagers told this story, in fact, for, for for, for years. And so the grandfather said, I'm going to go hunting. I've got to find something that will save our village. So the grandpa went out and hiked and hiked and hiked, went out through the savannah, the, uh, the grasslands. And as he came, he saw a gazelle, a lone gazelle on a hill. And grandpa said, that gazelle, I got one bullet, I can't miss it. And so he crawled up, got in gunshot range of that gazelle, and just as he did, crawling about 15 feet in front of him was a black mamba. Now, the black mamba is one of the most deadly snakes in the world. They range from six feet, and the longest black mamba found was 14 feet. If you're bitten by a black mamba, and often they bite more than once, and they can be attack, they can attack. They're very aggressive at times, and they can bite you multiple. Typically, you die within 7 to 15 hours. So here, this, this old man is out there with his gun to shoot the gazelle, and he has one bullet, and the black mamba is there. And he has to make a decision. Do I kill the snake and my village go hungry, or do I shoot the gazelle? You know, what do I do? And he makes this decision. He said, I'm going to quietly back up, crawl around to the other side of the hill, and shoot the gazelle from the other side. So he does. He crawls around to the other side. And as he does, he aims his gun to shoot the gazelle. He has no idea the black mamba has followed him. And as he begins to aim, he feels this searing, painful bite on the back of his leg. And he's been bitten by the black mamba. He doesn't return home. He's lying there writhing in pain. The villagers come to find him, and he has only a few hours to live. And he says, if there's only one bullet in the gun, shoot the black mamba. You see, he had to make a choice. Do I feed the family or do I save my life? His priorities were mixed up. Now, maybe there's no black mamba chasing you. 
But, you know, sometimes it is possible to make a decision. And that decision that we make maybe puts deadly poison through our beings because we mistake our priorities. Entertainment becomes more important than devotions. That's the black mamba syndrome. You see, uh, work becomes more important than church. So I work incessantly and I'm so tired I can't go to church on Sabbath morning. Or I go and I sleep halfway through because I'm so incredibly exhausted. See, that's the black mamba syndrome. It is trading at times something that is good for something that is eternally significant. And the great question in life is not what's good. The great question in life is what is eternally significant? The difference between the urgent, there's a difference between the urgent and the importance. There, it may be urgent to eat for that grandpa, but it was vitally more important for him to save his life. Jesus was able to distinguish between the urgent and the eternally significant. Are you willing to ask Jesus to help you every day to distinguish between the things that are so urgent and the things that are eternally significant? There are many things you might like to do, many things that are urgent, but there are some that are important. Here's the prayer that we pray on that second principle. Jesus, lead me today to distinguish between the urgent things and the eternally significant things. Will you pray that prayer? Will you ask Jesus, Jesus, help me? There's so much clamoring for our attention. There's so much vying for our attention. There's so much screaming at us. Life is filled with a caffeine of activity. Life is filled with its busyness, with its hustle and bustle. And sometimes it's necessary to step back and take three deep breaths and say, Lord, help me not lose a sense of what's important here. Help me not lose a sense of what's significant here. Help me not have my priorities mixed up. Help me, dear Lord, to distinguish between the urgent, between the temporal and the eternal, before, before the thing, between the things of time and the things of eternity, between the things that simply absorb my effort and energy, but in the long run are not going to be eternally significant. First eternal principle. God, what's your will? Second eternal principle. Lord, help me to distinguish between the urgent and the eternally significant. Third eternal principle. Jesus' life's purpose was to know God and make him known. And if you've missed that, you've missed the purpose of life. Jesus' eternal purpose was to know God and make him known. Now you find that in Mark, the first chapter, and this is the third passage of Scripture we're looking at. We looked at John 17, verse 4. We found that God, that Jesus had a work to do given by the Father. And we seek God's will in our work, in our practice. We looked at John chapter 11, and we found in that passage that Christ was able to do things great because at times he did not do things that were good. That Christ was able to do things that were eternally significant because he did not yield to the urgent that was all around him. But Christ's purpose is brought to bear in Mark, the first chapter. The one that brought, me, brought my attention to Mark chapter 1 
and its real significance to healing and medical missionary work was Johnny Erickson Tata. Now, many of you know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. She was in her late teens, and she was in a diving accident in which she was paralyzed and became a quadriplegic. So she could no longer button her blouse, no longer brush her teeth, couldn't use her hands, couldn't use her feet. And one day I was sitting in Johnny Erickson Tata's studio. We were talking, and she happened to be painting with, uh, with colored pencils in her mouth. And she was drawing a picture. It was just magnificent. We were talking, and I said to her, Johnny, uh, tell me, what is the... Um, What's the most difficult thing with painting with that mouth stick, with, the, with those colored pencils in your mouth? She said, Mark, pull a pencil out. So I pulled a pencil out of her mouth. She said, it's the lousy taste of the pencils. <laughs> Just a magnificent person. And I, I, I said to her, I said, have you ever been bitter at God because you were not healed? And she said, or have you ever been bitter at God because of this accident, you know, paralyzed from your neck down. And she said, Mark, let's study for a few moments Mark chapter 1. And she led me into Mark chapter 1. Now, I'm going to share with you some things before I get into what she told me that are relevant to our topic tonight. But then I'll come right to the passage that she mentioned to me. Now, we're going to look at uh, Mark chapter 1, and we're going to start there at Mark 1, and we're going to look at verse... Mark 1, verse 21 and onward. Mark chapter 1, verse 21 and onward. Then I'll come a little later to the portion that Johnny shared with me. Mark 1, verse 21. Then they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught. Now, this is significant to me. If you look throughout Scripture and throughout the New Testament, Christ, as his custom was, went to the synagogue on Sabbath. Jesus, the divine Son of God, had a sense of sacredness about the Sabbath. He went there to worship. He went there to teach. He went there to receive the blessings from heaven. John Harvey Kellogg, in the great busyness of Battle Creek, began to neglect Sabbath worship. It was one of the things that began to eat away at the very soul of this great medical missionary physician. I read an article just not long ago by a Jewish physician, and uh, here's the title of the article by this Jewish physician. It is, Why Sabbath Keeping Has Made Me a Better Doctor. Now, that article by Dr. Jacob Friedman is really worth reading, and here's what Dr. Friedman says. I'll read you a little bit about it. Keeping the Sabbath keeps me sane. Back in medical school, when my roommate asked me how I'd identify 3,481 parts of the human abdomen and thorax. Now, I don't know if there are 3,481 parts. This is what the doctor said. You want to argue with him? Argue with him, not with me. I'm just reading the thing. Don't kill the messenger. Okay. Back in medical school, when my, you say, that's a preacher. He doesn't know how many are there. Well, I'm not saying that. I'm reading the thing. Now, come on. Okay. Back in medical school, when my roommate asked me how I'd identify all 3,481 parts of the human abdomen and thorax for our exam on Anatomy Monday, I explained... Resting one day a week gives me the power to study hard for the next six days. 
the mindfulness the Sabbath provides me left me rejuvenated enough to brave the monsoon of medical school exams, and I weathered the storm well enough to land at Harvard Medical School for a top-notch residency program. Then he talks about how he's kept the Sabbath all through his medical practice. And he says, sure, I go treat people if it's an emergency. But he points this out, and I, I thought this was so insightful. He says, observing the Sabbath prevents me from being another victim of the burnout epidemic ravaging my colleagues in the medical field. Looking at the faces around the hospital on Monday mornings, you don't have to be an expert psychiatrist to see despair in the eyes of the folks who work straight through the weekend, didn't spend time with their loved ones. It's the look of mental exhaustion, the look of preparing to quit by 45, and the look of needing a psycho a psychotherapist to talk about the, the uh, tragedy of physician burnout. And he says, one day, he was talking to another Jewish friend, and the Jewish friend says to him, Did you protect the, do you protect the Sabbath as a physician? And he looks at the Jewish friend and smiled and said, no, I don't protect the Sabbath at all as a physician. The Sabbath protects me. As a physician... The Sabbath is your oasis. It's the time you come. Sure, there are emergencies. But the Sabbath is a sacred gift given to us by God to rejuvenate our spirits, to, to, to encourage our hearts, to strengthen our souls. Now, Jesus performs a miracle that Sabbath. Mark chapter 1, we're going back to it. Jesus performs a miracle that Sabbath. A demon-possessed man comes into the synagogue, and Jesus heals him. He sees that emergency there. Jesus leaves the synagogue to go for a fellowship dinner. At the fellowship dinner, the cook is sick, and Jesus, that's Simon Peter's mother. You find that in verse 30 of Mark 1. She lays sick with a fever. Jesus takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and she is healed, and then she serves him. But notice it's very fascinating to me, verse 32. At evening when the sun was set, they brought him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Now notice it was after sundown that Jesus did his major work of healing. It was after sundown that he did. Why? Because he himself needed that strength that rejuvenation that comes from the Father. So Jesus is doing that work of healing. The sun has set. But it's fascinating also that what happens the next morning. The disciples are searching for Jesus. They want to come to him because there are many that have not been healed from the night before. But where is Jesus early that next morning? We find it here in verse 35. Now in the morning... Having risen a great while before daylight, he went out and departed in a solitary place and he prayed. This is significant. Sabbath is over. Jesus has had this incredible evening. Multitudes have come to him. They're sick. They're demon-possessed. He's tired. He's weary. He's fatigued. He's emotionally exhausted from serving. Caregivers give not only of their time, 
not only of their energy, but they give of themselves. But the next morning, Jesus is there early. Jesus is up that morning. Personal communion with God. Daily devotions take time. The urgent was calling, but Christ had an eternally significant priority. He knew that he could not serve others unless he spent time in the presence of God. He knew that he would be burned out. He knew that he would be emotionally exhausted. He knew that he would have nothing to give unless he received. So there, in the presence of God, he drank from the eternal well of salvation. I love the way Ellen White puts it. We find it there in Desire of Ages 363, when every other voice is hushed, and in quietness we wait before him. The silence of the soul makes more distinct the voice of God. When every other voice is hushed, is there a quiet place that you have? You will burn out as a caregiver unless you have your vision constantly rekindled by Christ. You will become exhausted, burned out, fatigued, overwhelmed, frustrated, unless day by day the grace that comes from the most holy place of heaven's sanctuary fills your heart and overflows so you can go and minister and serve that day. Every day, Jesus longs to fill that well of your life. Ministry of Healing, page 58. In a life wholly devoted to the good of others, I am sharing tonight with a room full of people whose lives are wholly devoted to the good of others. That's why you have gone into dentistry. That's why you have gone into medicine. In a life wholly devoted to the good of others. The Savior, that's Jesus Christ, found it necessary. Jesus' life was wholly devoted to the good of others. But he found it necessary to turn aside from ceaseless activity and contact with human needs. Now, there's a point in which it is necessary to turn aside from ceaseless activity. There is also a point, if Jesus did it, that it's necessary to turn aside from contact with human needs in a life wholly devoted to the good of others. The Savior found it necessary to turn aside from ceaseless activity and contact with human needs to seek retirement and unbroken communion with his Father. Are you willing to say, Jesus... I'm going to set aside time for you. I'm going to stop running. I'm going to stop rushing. I want to listen to your voice speak to my soul. I want the grace that flows from the most holy place of heaven's sanctuary to fill my heart. I want to overflow with your grace and your goodness. Notice Medical Ministry, page 31. Every physician should be a devoted, intelligent medical missionary, familiar with heaven's remedy for the sin-sick soul. The remedy for the soul is the grace of God. Jesus lived life with a purpose. His purpose was to know God, and his purpose was to make him known. That leads me 
to a vital truth that Johnny Erickson Tata shared with me that day. I said to Johnny, aren't you somewhat distressed that you're a quadriplegic? Have you ever felt bitter or angry with God? She said, you know, after my diving accident, many of my friends said, if you just pray, God's going to automatically, he's going to miraculously heal you. I prayed I wasn't healed. Well, if you pray and have enough faith, you'll be healed. I prayed and believed and I wasn't healed. But then, Pastor Mark, I came to this conclusion that the purpose, that the greatest purpose God had for my life was not to heal me, but for me to glorify him. And that healing was not the greatest purpose of God's life for me. It was to me to glorify him. And she said, Mark chapter 1 was the key that unlocked this mystery of life for me. If you have your Bible or you have your text, look at it, please. Mark the first chapter. And we're looking there at Mark chapter 1. Simon is nervous. Peter, Simon Peter is anxious. The crowds have returned. They have come to the house of, of, of Simon Peter. They're looking for Jesus. And so Simon Peter goes and seeks out Jesus. He finds him along the shores of Galilee. Jesus is in that solitary place. Jesus is praying. Verse 37. Peter comes and anxiously says, when they found him, they said to him, everybody's looking for you. Jesus, it's urgent. Jesus, come now. Jesus, your work is not done. Jesus, there are blind eyes to be healed. Jesus, there are to be opened. Jesus, there are deaf ears to be unstopped. Jesus, there are withered arms to be healed. Jesus, there are, there are uh, hungry people to be fed. Jesus, there are children that are sick. Jesus, the town, you did some work last night, but Jesus, come back. Now, this is amazing. Jesus leaves a town with a lot of sick people there. Verse 38. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout Galilee and casting out demons. Jesus said in effect, healing is important. The healing of the body is important. But there's something more important, that's the healing of the soul. Jesus said curing physical illness is important, but there's something more important. It's eternally significant, getting people ready for eternity. And Johnny Erickson Tata said to me, when I understood that the healing of my body was important, but there was something more significant, something more important, that I had a purpose in life, and that was to know Christ. I had a purpose in life to make him known. I had a purpose in life to glorify God. You have been uniquely called by God to know God, to know Christ, and to make him known. Will you say tonight in the depths of your soul, Jesus, there are some things that are urgent, but there are others that are eternally significant. Knowing you is the purpose that I live. Making you known is the purpose that I live. Three simple prayers. Would you like to bow your head right now and pray them? Three very simple prayers. Lord, I'm willing to surrender my time, 
my finances, and my practice to you. Do with it what you want. If deep within your heart you are willing to surrender your time, your finances, your practice, or if you are not a medical professional, a dentist, or a doctor, you can make this commitment by saying, Lord, I'm willing to surrender my time, my finances, and my life to you. If you're willing to do that, just take a moment now. And then we're going to continue our prayer through these three prayers. But the first prayer is a willingness. A willingness to be sold out for Christ. A willingness to seek his will. A willingness to understand his purpose more deeply for your life. Just take a moment and make that consecration. As we continue in prayer, will you ask Jesus to help you to know the difference between things that are temporal and things that are eternal, between the good things and the great things, between that which is important and that which is eternally significant? Would you do that just now? Father, as we bring this prayer to a close and bring this meeting to a close, there's one last commitment that your Spirit is working on our heart to make. Father, sometimes our devotional life becomes quite shallow, pushed to the side. But Lord, we know if we're going to give, we must receive. We know if we're going to share your love, that love must fill our hearts. We know that Jesus said that he's like rivers of water that flow into our hearts and overflow. Father, we know that if we're empty, we can't help other people be full. If we're superficial, we can't help other people be deep. Father, we want to spend time in your presence. We know the solution to burnout, one of the great solutions to that is getting orders from Jesus every day and being so clear on his will and his purpose and receiving his strength and power that it changes our lives. Lord, we want to do that. Every day we want to come into your presence. And Father, may Sabbath be a high day for us as it was for you. May Sabbath be a day of refreshing, a day of strength, a day of renewed physical, mental, and spiritual strength to serve. Sure, there'll be emergencies, but Lord, may we commit ourselves to the renewal of Sabbath. And Father, tonight we've seen Jesus, who actually at times left people sick. And that kind of baffles us. But he spoke to his disciples and he said, my purpose is to preach the gospel. Father, help us never forget the ultimate purpose. Help us never forget the reason that you've called us to be gospel medical missionaries. Help us in our practices, in our ministries, to be ambassadors of your love, ministers of your grace, evangelists for your kingdom. Help us to know our calling is to prepare a people for the coming of Jesus. And we thank you 
for the destiny to which you've called us. We thank you for the privilege of being ambassadors for Christ. Send us from this place and send us from this conference to minister, to serve, to bless, and to share your love with people that are seeking. In Christ's name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.